Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 17, 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. Well, we're about halfway through 2 Samuel chapter 11, the story of David and Bathsheba. And when we last met, David had summoned Bathsheba's husband Uriah from the battlefield in the area of Rabbah and told him to come immediately to Yerushalayim. Uriah was a key military leader in David's army. In 2 Samuel 23, Uriah is listed as one of 30 Giborim, mighty men of Israel. So he was a senior military officer who would have been well known to David, if not most of Israel. This was not some obscure rank-and-file army officer. In fact, there is evidence in later chapters that Bathsheba's father, Elam, may have been a high-ranking civilian official in David's court. This would account for Uriah's and Bathsheba's residence being inside the walls of the city of David, a most prestigious location. Now David had taken advantage of Uriah's absence to seduce his beautiful young wife Bathsheba. Now, while in and of itself that's a pretty risky thing to do, complications set in around five or six weeks later when Bathsheba sent word to David that she was now pregnant. David's political self-preservation instincts kicked in. And so he began to devise a means to cover up his despicable act. His solution was to find an excuse to get Uriah to come home immediately, go to bed with his wife before there were any outward signs that she was carrying David's child. And then when her pregnancy became known, it would appear to everyone that the child was Uriah's. The problem was Uriah wasn't cooperating. At least at first, Uriah wasn't quite sure what the matter was that would prompt his king to just suddenly recall him from the battlefield in the midst of a siege. In fact, no reason whatsoever given by David to Uriah is recorded. And so we can reasonably speculate that none was put forward. Thus, when Bathsheba's husband arrives to the city of David to report to his king, David merely inquires about Joab, the commanding general, who is also David's nephew, the overall state of the battle and the well-being of the Israelite soldiers. Uriah dutifully answers his king's questions and is a bit taken aback when David suggests that he go home to have some time with his wife. He assumes that the king has just hasn't gotten around to the important reason that, that must have brought Uriah here so unexpectedly. Being a, a faithful officer in the Israelite army, bound in honor to his men and, and to Israel's national good, he chooses to stay readily available at the palace with the other men who are in service to the king as he waits for David to ask him whatever it is that was so important as to have him disengage from battle and rush to Jerusalem. But after a couple of failed attempts by David to get Uriah to go home, David's increasing insistence upon it starts arousing suspicion. Especially since David keeps suggesting that Uriah consort with his wife. The ancient sages say that Uriah sensed something wasn't right here. And that something may have transpired between David and Bathsheba. Thus Uriah invoked his military duty, his patriotism, 
as a reason to refuse to go home, therefore thwarting David's plan. Now whether this was an intentional effort to sidestep King David's orders or just the behavior of a man displaying the highest level of faithfulness and being obedient to his own conscience, that is a bit debatable. But David wouldn't be deterred. If Uriah would not become a willing dupe to the cover-up, then there was no choice but to remove him from the equation altogether. Let's pick up our story there. 2 Samuel chapter 11, we're going to start reading at verse 14. Go to the end. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 344. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Yoav, and he sent it with Uriah. And in the letter he wrote, Put Uriah on the front lines of the fiercest fighting, and then pull back from him so that he'll be wounded and killed. So while Yoav had the city under siege, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew the toughest defenders were. Well, the men of the city went out and fought Yoav, and a number of people fell, including some of David's servants, with Uriah the Hittite among the dead. Well, Yoav sent a message to David reporting all the news concerning the war, and he instructed the messenger... When you have finished telling the king all the news about the war, he may become angry. And he'll ask you, Why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they'd shoot from the wall? Didn't you think about the person who struck Avimelech, the son of Erubasheth, that a woman threw an upper millstone down on him from the wall so he died at Tevetz? Why did you go so near the wall? And if he says this, tell him, Your servant Uriah is dead also. So the messenger left. And on arrival he told David that uh, all that Yoab had sent him to say. And the messenger said to David, The men were overpowering us and came out after us into the countryside, but we chased them back all the way to the entrance of the city gate. The archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's uh, servants are dead. Also your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. And David said, to the messenger, tell Yoav, don't let this matter get you down. The sword devours in one way or another. Intensify your battle against the city and overthrow it. Encourage him. Well, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned her husband. When the mourning was over, David sent and took her home to his palace, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But Adonai saw what David had done as evil. A couple of lessons ago, I explained that Judaism turns this story on its head and makes David the hero and Uriah the bad guy in order that David fulfills their view as a near-perfect human who possesses every positive attribute of the Messiah. Thus, Uriah's refusal to obey David and go home to his wife and have sex with her is viewed as insubordination, as rebellion, even though by now Bathsheba's husband had a pretty strong suspicion about what might have occurred. The reality of all this is obviously otherwise. While indeed Uriah, the battle-hardened soldier and intelligent military officer, probably smelled a rat, Everything he did displayed a great faithfulness to the king and to the God of Israel. In fact, what comes next paints Uriah as either the most amazingly loyal of troops or the most naive. And there can be no doubt that he's the former rather than the latter. In verse 14, David wrote a message for Uriah to take with him back to the siege and to give it to Yoav. Uriah is essentially carrying with him his own death warrant. And yet the irony is that the homicidal and adulterous David fully understands that Uriah is so trustworthy, he's so dedicated, there's no reason to wonder if he might open that message and read it. To be sure, the means of such communication was a scroll with a wax seal affixed that made tampering with it obvious. Nonetheless, 
Uriah could have devised any number of ways to view the contents or offer a solid excuse as to why it had been opened should what was inside turn out to be benign. On the other hand, such a scroll could easily get lost, never delivered to Joab if Uriah's suspicions proved to be true. Uriah could even have chosen to defect to some other nation if he confirmed David's intentions to have him eliminated. But the contents of the letter are chilling. David knows that his seduction of Bathsheba is going to become public. And he has no choice, or rather no chance of pinning Bathsheba's pregnancy on her husband because the entire royal court witnessed Uriah doggedly refusing to leave the palace. So now David compounds his adultery with conspiracy to commit murder. By the law of Moses, both both adultery and murder require capital punishment. Of course, David's the king. There's no way that he will suffer consequences at the hand of other men. So David is by no means attempting to save his own life by these actions he's taking. Rather, this is all about politics. It's all about sexual lust. Something that has gone hand in hand since time immemorial because the common denominator for both is the desire for power. Now as cold-blooded as are David's instructions to have Uriah killed, so they are equally as improbable and clumsy. One can only imagine Yoav opening this scroll, reading the royal order, and thinking that his uncle must be losing his grip because these instructions are fanciful, if not delusional. David tells Joab to have Uriah sent to the front of the fighting and then have all the men just suddenly pull back and abandon him. That way the enemy can easily kill him. Joab knew this was impossible. First of all, Uriah himself commanded the troops. Okay. Second, what intelligent, experienced, and aware soldier would just stand there and allow himself to be left behind as the others suddenly left? But Joab is himself a consummate political animal. He's a family member of David's. And so keeping his high ranking, his position, that's job one. So he fully understands that while David's prescribed method is absurd, eh, the intent's not ambiguous. Get Uriah killed. Get him killed by the enemy so that it appears that it was just another sad battlefield death. And Joab coldly calculates the best way to accomplish that without regard to the morality of the act. In order to give David's plan some credibility, verses 16 and 17 explain how Joab accomplished the king's wishes. Knowing that if you're going to make an omelet, you're going to have to break a few eggs... Joab sends Uri along with what would have been some of Uriah's men to where the fighting was always the most dangerous during a siege, right next to the city walls. Several Israelite troops were killed by the Ammonites along with Uriah. Mission accomplished. And according to the rabbis, justice was served because David was legally entitled to have Uriah put to death because he'd been disrespectful by not obeying David to go home and have sex with Bathsheba. I don't think I need to spend any time disputing such a hopelessly ill-conceived claim. Now this might be a good time to pause a moment and talk about something that we're all familiar with. Dutifully following orders no matter how illegitimate or immoral they might be. And then when confronted with the dastardly consequences, putting up the defense that we were just doing our job. 
and thus we ought to be held immune by God and man. The reality is that in that situation, in God's view, we are nothing less than co-conspirators to to commit intentional wrongdoing against Him. Such a thing can take many subtle forms. Joab's was the classic. But since we are currently in the political silly season, another good example might be the outright lies and distortions hurled by one opponent towards the other in hopes of winning an election. Or the pronouncement of a litany of false promises that the politician has no intentions of keeping with victory as the same hope for outcome. But of course the candidate for office invariably has a highly paid team who advises, they create the narrative and the advertising that puts forth all those falsehoods. What is their rationale for avoiding responsibility? It's my job. It's just part of the process. It's usual and customary, and I'm just doing what I was hired to do. We all know politicians don't tell the truth. They have one face for the public, another behind closed doors. So for them, distorting, withholding the truth is just a part of their profession. And therefore, it ought not be seen as wrong or criminal or even as indicative of their character. So the person who aids them My goodness, they must be even more innocent. How about the highly paid corporate accountant who is instructed by upper management to manipulate numbers or make falsified reports even though he knows full well it's just full of intended inaccuracies? What's his excuse for for complying with this? Hey, I'm innocent. Because I just did what I was told to do. It's not my job to judge the boss. I could lose my job if I didn't do it. How about the real estate agent that helps his client hide serious defects in the property he's about to sell to an unwitting buyer who would never complete the sale if he found out? Or a lawyer who's given the legal right to know with certainty that his client is guilty as charged, but instead works to have him fully exonerated, escape justice, maybe even given the opportunity to go out and offend again. How about the doctor that overcharges for some tests or procedures on your behalf so that your insurance will pay enough to cover the legitimate charges and thus it makes it cost less for you? How about the pastor? The priest, the rabbi, who teaches his congregation a doctrine or a religious principle that he knows is not true. But it does adhere to his denominational creed to which he has vowed. Thus teaching it allows him to maintain his position in the church or the synagogue that employs him. Killing Uriah wasn't Joab's idea. He didn't even seem to have anything against him. But Joab was every bit as guilty as David. Because it's one thing to send men into harm's way in war, knowing that the inevitable result of a legitimate battle is that many are going to lose their lives. But it's quite another to knowingly use the enemy as a means of killing a comrade that you want dead for ulterior motives. Joab was merely trying to please his king, to do what he was told, but now he had blood guilt on his head. David did too. And yet, neither one of them held the weapon that killed Bathsheba's husband. Let him who has ears hear. Yoav sends a courier back to Jerusalem to tell David about the initial setback near the walls of Rabbah in which Israel suffered tragic casualties. 
Now, wanting to be cautious, not fully trusting the messenger to be as blindly loyal as himself, Joab disguises the part of the message that David is anxiously awaiting to hear by making it seem as though Uriah's death was merely an incidental part of the report. He fully expected David to understand the intent. However, if David became angry by failing to understand the that the deaths of the other soldiers were just necessary collateral damage in order for the king's command to be carried out, then the messenger was to emphasize Uriah's demise. And indeed, David did get angry when he heard the report. David couldn't fathom why Joab would do something so fundamentally unsound from a tactical standpoint, as to put his men directly under the city walls where they were vulnerable. They were bound to suffer casualties. However, David's anger stemmed more from Yoav not going about things as David had ordered, no matter how ridiculous or impossible those orders, than about the soldiers being killed. And by the way, his callous response demonstrates this. David's reply to be sent back to Yoav sounds to the messenger kind of like a standard soldier's cliche. Don't let this matter get you down. The sword devours in one way or another. It's, it's, it's like troops saying in our day, every bullet has its billet. But because David's intent was to send a coded message back to Joab, that he understood why the other soldiers had to die in order for Uriah to be killed. David's words are full of deceit, they're cold-blooded, and they're devised so that the messenger won't be any the wiser. Oh well, if a few unimportant foot soldiers die, so what? That's just the price of success. That's just the reasonable cost of David achieving his cover-up, keeping his reputation clean, getting the girl. And as we're going to see in the next chapter, David's exact words are going to come back to haunt him. And he's going to haunt his family in ways that David could never have imagined. This chapter ends with Bathsheba getting word of her husband's death and engaging in the standard ritual mourning protocol. The mourning period would have been seven days. Even the rabbis admit that the way the wording of verse 26 is structured makes it that immediately following the seven days of mourning, David sent for Bathsheba and married her. Now the reason for such haste, beyond his raging lust and impatience, is that by now Bathsheba was probably between two and three months pregnant And her growing belly was soon going to show. Marrying the widow of a deceased man was not unusual in that era. In fact, if you'll recall, David married Abigail under somewhat similar circumstances and it was not at all deemed evil by God, at least as far as we know. However, marrying Bathsheba so quickly, eh, this was just part of the cover-up plan. And in some ways, it was for her benefit so that she wouldn't be humiliated and shunned when her condition became apparent. You know, as an aside, it's interesting that we find David's descendant Miriam, mother of Yeshua, pregnant before formal marriage, and her betrothed Joseph marrying her partly to save Miriam the embarrassment of being obviously pregnant out of wedlock. The circumstances aren't exact, and nor the motives pure in David's and Bathsheba's case, but the parallel and the pattern can't be ignored. Well, the final verse of this chapter has the narrator doing the thing that on one level really makes the Bible the trustworthy and believable document that it is. In all eras, the faithful biographer of a king did not record anything but those acts of merit and courage displayed by his employer. Especially 
in the scores of thousands of Egyptian and Syrian and Mesopotamian and other ancient documents uncovered and translated, kings and royalty are held up as having impeccable character, absolutely never committing a wrong. They never lose a battle. But in the Bible, even the greatest heroes such as David have their worst deeds and thoughts exposed. There is no effort by the biblical writers to place these men and women on heavenly pedestals, even though both Christianity and Judaism often do. Without equivocation, the writer of David and Bathsheba, this this episode says that the Lord God saw what David had done as evil. And the Lord cannot allow evil to stand. This next chapter shows that even God's anointed and specially chosen and beloved is not above divine justice. So let's move on to chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12. David said to uh, David sent Nathan. Uh, let me back up. Adonai sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said, "In certain in a certain city, there were two men, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except for one little ewe lamb which he had bought and reared. It had grown up with him and his children. It ate from his plate, drank from his cup, lay on his chest. It was like a daughter to him." And one day a traveler visited the rich man and instead of picking an animal from his own flock or herd to cook for this visitor, he took that poor man's lamb and he cooked it for the man who had come to him. Now David exploded with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As Adonai lives, that man who did this deserves to die. For doing such a thing, he has to pay back four times the value of that lamb. Also because he had no pity. Natan said to David, You are that man. Here is what Adonai, the God of Israel, says, I anointed you king over Israel. I rescued you from the power of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives to embrace. I gave you the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And if it had been too little, I would have added to it a lot more. So why have you shown such contempt for the word of Adonai and done what I see is evil? You murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword and you took his wife as your own wife and you put him to death with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now therefore the sword will never leave your house because you have shown contempt for me. You have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite as your own wife. Here is what Adonai says. I will generate evil against you out of your own household. I will take your wives before your very eyes and give them to your neighbor. He will go to bed with your wives. Everyone will know about it. For you did it secretly. But I will do all this before all Israel in broad daylight. David said to Natan, I have sinned against Adonai. And Nathan said to David, Adonai has taken away your sin. You will not die. However, because by this act you have so greatly blasphemed Adonai, the child born to you must die. Then Nathan returned to his house. Adonai struck the child that Uriah's wife had borne to David and it became very ill. And David prayed to God on behalf of the child. David fasted, then came and lay all night on the ground. The court officials got up and stood next to him, trying to get him off the ground, but he refused. He he wouldn't eat food with them. And on the seventh day, the child died. The servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead because they said, while the child was alive, we spoke to him and he he didn't listen to us. And we tell him now that the child is dead, he, he may do himself some harm. But when David saw his servants whispering to each other, 
He suspected that the child was dead. And David asked his servants, Is the child dead? And they answered, He is dead. And David got up off the ground, washed, anointed himself, changed his clothes. He went to the house of Adonai and worshipped. And then he went to his own palace. And when he asked for food, they served him and he ate. His servants asked him, What are you doing? You, you fast and wept for the child while it was alive. But now that the child is dead, you get up and eat food. And he answered, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept because I thought, Maybe Adonai will show his grace to me and let the child live. But now that he's dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him. He'll never return to me. David comforted his wife, Bathsheba, came to her, went to bed with her, and she gave birth to a son and named him Shlomo, Solomon. Adonai loved him and sent through Natan the prophet to have him named Yadidah, Jedidah, loved by God for Adonai's sake. Yoav fought against Rabab, the people of Ammon, and took the royal city. Yoav sent people to David with this message, I have fought against Rabah, I have captured its water supply, therefore assemble the rest of the people, lay siege to the city and capture it, otherwise I will capture the city and it will be named after me. David assembled all the people, went to Rabah, fought against it and captured it. He took the crown off Malcolm's head. It weighed 66 pounds with its gold and precious stones and it was placed on David's head. He carried off great quantities of spoil from the city and in addition he expelled the people who were in it and set them to work with saws, iron harrows, and iron axes and had them cross, had them cross over to work in the brick factory. This is what he did to all the cities of the people of Ammon. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. I want to quote to you something written by a wonderful Jewish scholar, Rabbi Nosan Sherman. As directly concerns our study, but it also is as it pertains to David being a shadow and a type of the Messiah. Now, I, I, I think that while Judaism does not recognize the Messiah as having come, and thus some of the mystery about Messiah that they still see as existing has actually been resolved, on the other hand, Judaism does see certain elements of the link between David and Messiah that we Christians often overlook. Rabbi Sherman says this, From its very beginning, the process through which the Davidic dynasty and the eventual King Messiah were to come into being has been mysterious and hidden. The nation of Moab, the nation that Ruth, the ancestress of David came from, came into being when Lot lived incestuously with his daughter. Peretz, the ancestor of David was born from that strange relationship between Judah and Tamar. David descended from the marriage of Ruth and Boaz, a relationship that some criticized as being a violation of Halakha. David's dynasty descended from his marriage with Bathsheba, which is so shrouded in obvious impropriety. Kind of an interesting thought. So while on the one hand, I cannot overlook or teach you to overlook the obvious violence done to the Holy Scriptures concerning David as done by sages and rabbis anxious to hold David above all wrongdoing and make him out to be perhaps the most pious man ever to live. On the other hand, those same men have done us a great service in setting the stage for a richer understanding of the nature and purpose of Messiah if we'll only get outside of our many man-made Christian doctrines that act more like barriers to enlightenment than road markers to truth. 
one of the means to apprehending a much more thorough understanding of David and then also some of the deeper insights into the biblical messianic principles is by reading the Psalms. And yet it's important to read the Psalms not like a book, one after the other, but rather each psalm in the context of the events and circumstances that they were created. Only then can we get their true essence. See, Psalms 31 and 50, uh, rather Psalms 32 and 51 are directly related to what we are studying as regards David and Bathsheba. David wrote them in the midst of what we're currently reading in 2 Samuel uh, chapters 11 and 12. Thus to exclude them from our study would be to leave large blanks left unfilled that could give us insight into what David was thinking, what he was feeling throughout his self-made trials and self-caused exile from God. Now, while we're not going to thoroughly study these psalms, I, I would like us to read them. And then I'd like to make a few comments about them that I think are appropriate for our purposes. Now, these were not necessarily written in the order. They're numbered, by the way. In fact, I strongly suspect that Psalm 51 was written before Psalm 32. Nonetheless, I'd like to begin by reading Psalm 32. So open your Bibles to Psalm 32. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, that's page 819. By David, a mosque How blessed are those whose offense is forgiven, those whose sin is covered. How blessed those to whom Adonai imputes no guilt, in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away because of my groaning all day long. Day and night your hand was heavy on me. The sap in me dried up as in a summer drought. But when I acknowledged my sin to you, when I stopped concealing my guilt, and I said, I will confess my offenses to Adonai, then you, you forgave the guilt of my sin. This is what everyone faithful should pray at a time when you can be found. Then when the floodwaters are raging, they will not reach him, reach to him. You are a hiding place for me. You will keep me from distress. You will surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct and teach you in this way that you are to go. I will give you counsel. My eyes will be watching you. Don't be like a horse or a mule that has no understanding, that has to be curbed with a bit and bridle, or else it won't come near you. Many are the torments of the wicked, but grace surrounds those who trust in Adonai. Be glad in Adonai. Rejoice, you righteous. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Even though it's fully halfway through 2 Samuel chapter 12, and after Nathan has read David the riot act on God's behalf, before we see David openly confess his sin, I want to prepare us for when we get to that particular verse with some key points taken from Psalm 32. Now as with us all, despite how we might outwardly appear to be confident in the rightness of our actions and content in our status before the Lord, seemingly sailing along, unimpeded on the course that God has set out for us, when we belong to the Lord, our hidden doings, our wrongs, will not allow us any rest. It's just the way it is. This was David's situation. It didn't take Nathan delivering God's oracle, 
for David to recognize that he was being eaten alive from the inside out. Rather, it took Nathan's message for him to take the required action to reverse the process. The burden of his sin was terrible. And because David refused to face it, his heart was like a piece of raw meat dropped into a glass of Coke. It was shriveling up, turning rancid. It was about to become unusable. David had committed the terrible sin of adultery with Bathsheba because he had way too much time on his hands. And this was because he had decided to sit in Jerusalem in comfort and safety rather than to go out with his army to holy war as he was supposed to. The Lord had moved away from him because David had decided to reign as though he was a Gentile king. The sin with Bathsheba came about well down the line of a steady process of his moving away from the Lord. Sin begets sin. That's how it works. Little ones lead to more sins and bigger ones. Big ones lead to horrific ones. David did not spot Bathsheba and then instantly have murderous intentions towards her husband. I think his first thought was that he wanted her for his harem. But more simply, he just wanted her because he was impulsively overcome with lust. I suspect that he could have called upon her for sexual favors from time to time as the urge moved him. He may well have been satisfied enough with that arrangement. But out of his adultery now came something he hadn't counted on. Her pregnancy. So next David tried to deal with the fallout of that sin that resulted in her pregnancy by quickly calling her husband home from war. Again, with no intentions at the moment to harm Uriah. And this was so that Uriah would have relations with her he having no idea his wife was already a few weeks pregnant. And then Uriah and everybody else would assume the child was his. And when this failed, David panicked. He took yet another step away from God and he brought blood guilt upon himself when he ordered Uriah to be murdered. Thus, David would now try to solve this complex and originally unintended web of sin by immediately marrying the widow, which he was certain would be publicly seen as a good and merciful thing to do. She would later have the baby that she was carrying, but that wasn't currently publicly known, so he'd be home free. Political problem solved. Phew! Problem is, God's economy doesn't work that way. Sin always demands a payment. God's justice is not set aside for anyone, ever. But beyond that, Psalm 32 shows how David learned an invaluable lesson. Confession is essentially the point at which we shove our foot on the brake, crank the steering wheel hard, and make a U-turn. Confession is the key to restoring our relationship with God. Confession is when that raw meat is removed from the glass of Coke and the harsh chemical reaction begins to subside. In Psalm 32, verse 3, David says it this way. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. 
Silence and lack of acknowledgement of our sin causes us to waste away. David had to outwardly admit his sin. He had to acknowledge the terribleness of what he had done and that it was a violation against God and man. He had to take personal responsibility for it. And until he did, nothing was going to change in his life. It's not that he had to draw a crowd and confess to them. We don't have to go on Oprah and pour out our souls to strangers to be counted as having confessed to God. Therefore, says verse 5, but when I acknowledged my sin to you, you forgave the guilt of my sin. It's not to people, but to God we have to acknowledge our sin. We must confess to Him not to our rabbi, not to our pastor, not to our priest. Now there is a very important principle contained here that we must not overlook. We'll end with this today. And it is one that many of our brethren in the church have been taught to deny. And the ramifications go deep. And that denial is a result of a damaging disrespect for God's Word that's infected the church for centuries. And it is this, that grace and not sacrifices brings us righteousness before God. What what you say? Wait a minute. You say, but I've been taught all along that grace has been is is a New Testament dispensation that it's that's how we're forgiven. Actually, what you've been taught is that grace is only a New Testament dispensation brought about by Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. You've been taught that grace never existed before the New Testament era, and thus the Old Testament is just an obsolete, faulty system of bloody sacrifices as the path to atonement. Thus in the Old Testament, redemption is by law. It's by animal sacrifices. And in the New Testament, redemption is by grace, a concept that was first introduced by Christ. Verse 10. Many of the torments of the wicked are uh, many are the torments of the wicked, but grace surrounds those who trust in Adonai. Be glad in Adonai. Rejoice, you righteous. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Grace surrounds those who trust in Adonai. Rejoice, you righteous. Because your righteousness is the result of the grace that comes by your trust in the God of Israel. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. See, having a circumcised heart is the issue, not a circumcised flesh. See, David wasn't pronouncing prophecy here. He was pronouncing a present and existing truth that stood before the pillars of the world did. Part of the reason that David is so keen to speak about grace and confession in this psalm is because of the blood guilt of murder that has been heaped upon his head. The law provides no means of animal sacrificial atonement for murder or for adultery for that matter. There is no ritual protocol to pay for murder. There is but the life of the murderer that is forfeit as payment. So if David is indeed forgiven, as God says he is, and there is no animal sacrifice available to facilitate forgiveness for this sin, what does David then actually view as the divine dynamic that has produced this forgiveness for him? Grace. 
And the reality is that despite the divine call for animal sacrifices, in the end, it has always been grace that saves us from the death penalty for our sins, not the blood of bulls and goats. Even the rabbis of old understood that the animal sacrifices were about obedience to God. And true obedience to God is born of trust, not legalistic and mechanical observances of rules. It's not that animal carcasses or that their blood possess some magical quality. It's that God, in His grace, set up a system that allowed His people a way to overcome their sin and a means to get back into fellowship with Him. If it was observed with the proper attitude and understanding of trust in Him. That system that He created was a visible, it was a tangible means for humans to comprehend some immutable, invisible spiritual realities. That system involved sacrifice of an innocent creature as a substitute for the guilty party. And it still does. It's just that instead of our being obedient to the sacrificial protocol of animals, we're to be obedient to the sacrificial protocol of Yeshua. In both cases, the underlying element of sacrifice was God's grace. Redemption has always been by grace, not by law or anything else. But what a difficult concept this is for human beings to fully grasp. David obviously grasped it. And he's communicating it here in Psalm 32. Okay, let's stop and we'll continue with the aftermath of David's sin with Bathsheba and the deep God principles that are highlighted now as a result of all this. We'll do this next time.